Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, we'll break down the latest job numbers for September. Dick Beauvais will explain where the largest gains were recorded and describe the fragile nature of the September gains, which many have called blowout numbers. Matt Van Alstyne says the headline numbers were exceptionally positive, but also very deceptive. Dick will take us on a tour of the H.G. Wells Time Machine and Aesop's Fables. What's happening in U.S. manufacturing? Is there any hope for the future with the Bureau of Economic Analysis saying spending increased sharply in the 12 months to August from the previous year? We'll look at the evidence. Dick has lots more on the U.S. banks with bank stocks beaten down for the past five years. He'll report on a rise in large deposits and on the outlook for U.S. banks. We'll turn to the harrowing events in Israel with the shocking scenes of lives lost and carnage on the streets. Dick will share his thoughts and Matt will offer us some personal history and his views. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome for episode 90. Uh, we've just witnessed some shocking, harrowing and awful scenes out of Israel in the past days. And we can look at that later when we get to global affairs. Um, but first, we had the jobs report come out on Friday. The headlines were pretty interesting. Jobs report shock, stunning numbers, blowout numbers. The U.S. economy added 336,000 jobs. That was twice uh, the numbers expected. Unemployment remained unchanged at 3.8%. Um, I guess the market took a while to digest, but then the market closed up on Friday. Your thoughts? Well, what caused the market to move up was not the uh, fact that there was a large number of jobs created. What caused the market to move up was uh, the wages. In other words, when the economists took a look at the uh, wage gains in the month and annualized the increase, uh, it was uh, you know well within the 2% range that the Fed is looking for. So, you know, the assumption was made by the market that the Fed will now be done and that, um, you know, basically uh, they've hit the target 
Uh, inflation is at uh, this 2.4% level, and therefore uh, it's time to focus on the growth in the economy because the Federal Reserve is no longer going to be a factor. I unfortunately am not in the camp that believes that, uh, but I do remember that from the first time the Fed increased interest rates, uh, you know, about 18 months ago, everybody has always said the Fed is done. So 18 months later, they're still saying the Fed is done. And if they keep saying it, you know, at some point, they're going to be right. Uh, the Fed is pretty close to being done, in my view. Uh, but I don't think they're done. But anyway, that's the reason. What, what interested me about the jobs report is the nature of where the increases in jobs came from. In other words, uh, seven of every 10 jobs that were added in the month of uh September came from three places. Number one, the leisure and hospitality industry. Number two, the government. Number three, the healthcare industry. So basically what we saw was only one out of every 10 of the jobs created coming from manufacturing and, 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 and durable goods or non-durable goods, you know, creation, which, which means that uh, all of the jobs are being created in the service sector uh, in pretty much low-wage positions. Uh, the average wages for, for someone working in the leisure industry right now, according to the government, is $550 a week. The average wage of the average American working is $1,100 a week, which is double you know, what the people get in the leisure industry. So I believe that these jobs are expendable jobs that were added. I believe these jobs can easily be erased. And I don't believe that these jobs, you know, are creating any major surge in the American economy. Plus, uh, I think to, to take a look at the wage gains when you're looking at two things, number one, a shift in the mix, right? The mix has shifted to uh, very low income uh, employees. And the second mix shift that was there is that production employees uh, rose at a slightly faster rate, not, not much faster, but a slightly faster rate than all employees. Or, or if you just subtract production employees from all employees, they rose at a faster rate than professional and managerial employees. So that shift, in my view, in the in the hourly wage number reflects a shift in the structure of the of the of the job market, as well as there was, you know, some easing off in, in the increase in wages. This is one of those job reports that leaves you just scratching your head. I mean, when when you look at the headline number and you know. I mean, I was a I was a, a trader when I worked at the hedge fund many decades ago, and you know, you would you would react to the headline number like, is this good or is this bad? That's all you. That's it's a binary, good or bad. And the headline number was extremely good, three hundred thirty six thousand jobs in September, when when every indication shows that the economy is about to crack. They're they're about to reinstate um, student loan payments. You know, you you go on and on. This looks like a good number, but. It's very deceptive. There are every I, I, we talk about it a lot, but there are two job reports that come out on jobs days. There's the household survey and there's the payroll survey. And this is the payroll survey, which includes, by the way, I talk about the birth death model whenever it um, seems like it's inflating the number. I believe on this one it decreased the number of payroll jobs. I think by 107,000. So this this on the surface looks like an extremely positive 
jobs report. But the household survey calculated, or sorry, not calculated, surveyed, only 89,000 jobs were, were created. And so the disconnect, if you look at the two of them, is that the household survey reported a lot of people are taking on second jobs. And what Dick mentioned also, they're part-time and they're leisure jobs. And so this is a this is a sign of a of a um a job market that is not really strong. When the jobs being added are second jobs and they're part-time and they're in the leisure or hospitality sector, that's that's people who are working full-time jobs saying, I need more money. And they're going in and 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 taking on a second job instead of it being like high end, you know white collar, upper middle class jobs. These are low end jobs that people are taking because they're desperate. And to me, it's just a sign that the economy is cracking. But the headline number sure, surely was reacted to when they're like, when, when you know, if you look at TLT or you look at the 30 year, it sure looked like people are saying, oh crap, the Fed isn't done. I know Dick thinks the Fed isn't done. I've probably said it 30 or 40 times. I think the Fed is done. One of these times I'm going to be right. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it close. I think it close. <laughs> and I don't I don't close. I don't think war in the Middle East is hurting my case. Yeah. I have a quick technical question. Uh it was an interesting comment uh on um business news immediately after the numbers came out that the markets took a dip and somebody referenced the um algorithmic traders, high speed traders. I'm wondering, have you any thoughts on that, Matt? Because the the markets rebounded immediately. Well, the the headline number. I mean, I'm, I'm I have no idea how they program the computers, but when you do algorithmic trading, you're not trying to be right. You're trying to guess what other people think. And the headline number was the Fed's going to raise rates. And then you start di diving into the numbers, and it's all part time jobs. It's all hospitality. It's all leisure. A little bit of it's government. You can't add government workers sustainably when government revenues are declining eventually that that feedback loop dies because there's not enough revenue so all the jobs added were low quality jobs from a from an economics perspective from an economy perspective of is this a healthy economy or not this is an unhealthy economy when this is the types of jobs you're adding so my hunch is the algorithm saw the headline and said oh everyone's going to react negatively to this but then they did the deep dive and they're like actually why would the feds be raising rates when this is the type of labor market we have where you're adding, you know, you, you have 700,000 fewer full-time employees than three months prior? I mean, that that is not a good economy. Well, also, the thing that disturbed me uh, most, and, and, and now this is going to get back to uh, going off, off the track a bit, but, you know, back in 1895, H.G. Uh, Wells wrote a book called The Time Machine, which was made into who knows how many movies and, uh, you know, serials, etc., because he was, uh, you know, I'm talking about movies being made in the 40s and 50s, you know, related to that book. The, the, the basic concept in the book was that, there were two groups of people on earth in the future. One group, the Eloi, were allowed to do whatever they wanted, never had to work, you know, lived in, in, in uh, this beautiful area, and they were clothed and they were fed by another group of people called the Morlocks that lived underground, and they ran all the machines and they produced all the goods and they did all of the, you know, things that were necessary to keep the economy in the world functioning. Problem was that the Morlocks saw the Eloy the way we look at cattle. In other words, we take care of our cattle, we feed them, we, we make sure that they're taken care of, and then we slaughter them and eat them. And that's what the Morlocks were doing. They were keeping the Eloy in good shape, and then they slaughtered them and they ate them. So <laughs> the effect is, what, 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 what the point 
that came out of that book was, is that the producers will control the world, not the consumers, in, in my view. And I think that the jobs report did exactly the same thing. You get one out of every 10 new jobs in production. You get, you know, seven out of every 10 jobs in, you know, the three areas that I mentioned, none of which are production. You know, you can't keep creating jobs in non-production areas and expect that the United States economy is going to, you know, survive as the strongest in the world. You know, if, if you were to take that analogy closer, you know, you would say that China is the Morlocks because they're producing everything and that, um, the consumer nations like the United States are the Eloy, that uh, we go out and borrow money to buy the goods that they produce while they get, you know, uh, stronger and stronger, although they're not getting stronger and stronger at the moment. I think that uh, this whole issue of not focusing on production is still going to be the biggest one that faces the U.S. economy. Um, and, and in Aesop's fable, you would call this a grasshopper economy because we're laughing and playing while, you know, the ants are in there, you know, uh, storing away the goods and, you know, making the economy stronger. So <clears throat> I think the economy's got to shift. It has to shift to production away from consumption. And I don't see that happening at the moment and you probably add to that prudence fiscal responsibility more production um well, maybe consumers need more personal responsibility but we're spending our way into a disaster and um, you were talking about the numbers local government in uh, last month added thirty-eight thousand jobs state government twenty-nine thousand. restaurants and bars was one of the biggest gainers uh sixty thousand jobs Healthcare and social assistance, 65,900. And then manufacturing is way down at the bottom. Yeah, it's less than 10,000. So the point is that uh, if if we don't manufacture, and I, we said this over and over again every week, you know, if we don't start manufacturing our goods in this location, you know, it uh, it is going to be devastating. Uh, I mentioned the other book, uh, the book that I read a couple of weeks ago uh, concerning uh, rare earths uh, and and the fact that that's being controlled by China. I'm now reading a book called Red Cobalt, which is uh, you know describing the situation in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and what you know the author there has has discovered right off the bat is it that you know this is this is the place where uh, 50% of the cobalt which is needed in the world uh, is mined and cobalt is in your you know iPhone it's in your in, in your electric car it's in your you know television uh, screen etc you know cobalt has now become more valuable than copper used to be that people would mine copper and cobalt together and, and copper was what they were looking for. And now they want cobalt. All right. The second point is that 70% of this production is owned by the Chinese. It's in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, but they're paying off the, um, the, the dictators that come and go, although they don't really go, they stay a long time there. They've gotten control of 70% or 50% of the world's production of cobalt uh, simply by what they're doing in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And, you know, they, you know, the book is, is, I'm only halfway through it. The book is expanding a little bit to indicate that that's not just unique to um, the DRC. Uh, it, it's also occurring, you know, in multiple places in, uh, in Africa. I mean, the Chinese have jumped all over all of the materials which are most needed to create the most advanced electronic products, whether they're solar panels, whether they're electric cars, whether they're batteries that have sustainable lives. 
you need to go to the Chinese to get the raw materials for those products. And that has got to change. It just can't continue. Again, I, I, I've said this before, Dick, I would absolutely support your candidacy <laughs> of the United States. But I, I don't know if you, you saw this, and I'll send it to you later. Uh, um, last month, Tim Cook was on a, a Fortune panel, Fortune magazine panel, um, at some sort of, you know, one of those elite conferences where he's being Q&A'd by a, by a sophisticated person. And they, they kind of pressed him hardcore on, you know, what you're talking about, bringing manufacturing to the United States. And he said, um, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I'm going to paraphrase that they tried. You know, Trump, Trump was very passionate about getting Apple to try to manufacture their products in the United States. And Trump was arguing on tariffs and on shipping and, you know, lots of things that they, you know, they could ultimately maybe save money by coming to the United States. And Tim Cook said in this fortune panel that moving to the United States is not a cost-based decision. He said that, that it's a population that doesn't have the skills for tooling and manufacturing. And what he talked about was the types of people that have the skills to alter a manufacturing plant and use the tooling mechanisms to create specific parts. He said you could barely fill up a room in the United States with the people that have the talents for that. And you can go to China and any city has 100,000 people that have the talent for it. And that the big difference between China and America is not the wage gap, it's the talent gap. And that we don't have talent in the, the raw manufacturing skill sets that are needed and necessary. And we've talked about our defense contractors saying the similar types of things. If we lose China, we don't have weapons. If we lose China, we don't have submarines. If we lose China, we don't have the raw materials. We don't have the tooling. We don't have the the skill sets to make the specific parts. And so, I I agree with you. We need a reframing of the American system and the reframing of the American establishment. But we are a long ways from that happening, in my opinion. Yeah, no, you're right. And if you go back in time, I wish I could remember the name of this guy, but he worked for Ford. And at the time, the Chinese were trying to break it, the Japanese were trying to break into the United States market uh, with uh, their automobiles. And they brought the Datsun into the United States, which was a total disaster because the, the car kept breaking down completely. Now, Ford, you know, did not want to use this guy's mechanisms, you know, in order to uh, change production in their facilities. So he was hired by the Japanese. Uh, and the Japanese started uh, focusing on, you know, improving production in, in Japanese factories to the point where now supposedly Japanese cars are superior to American cars. But the, the Chinese picked up on that right away. And, you know, if if you uh, take a look at, you know, some of the books written about both countries, you'll see that while the United States has been focusing on designing and creating superior products, the Chinese have been focusing on designing and creating better productive capability in, in the workforce. So, you know, what you say is exactly true, Matt. It's not simply saying, okay, given the tax breaks, et cetera, we have got to reframe production in the United States by creating, because Americans aren't stupid people. They can do what any people everywhere in the world can do. And I would argue they can do it better. We're not training them to do it better. We don't have vocational high schools anymore. We, when I went to high school, you know, you had a choice. You either went to the regular high school or you went to the vocational high school. When I was growing up in New York City, they had a whole bunch of high schools oriented solely to vocations. You wanted to be a cook, there was a high school for cooks. You wanted to be an actor, there was a high school for actors. You wanted to be uh, operate in, in, in the manual trades, there was a 
high school for that. You were intellectually, uh, you know, in, in a good shot spot. They had a whole bunch of high schools for that. We don't do that anymore. You know, somehow people who go to the vocational schools are perceived to be in inferior in some fashion when clearly they are not. Jamie Dimon, you know, my guru, obviously, because uh, I keep, you know, quoting him. In uh, I guess it was a year ago, he said that he was no longer going to let uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, give large donations to you know traditional colleges. He wanted those donations given to vocational schools, you know, for, for schools that taught people how to do things with their hands. And and you know, you're so right when you say that you know this has to happen in the United States if we're going to you know get the manufacturing capabilities that we that we must get. You know the F fifty. I don't know what the new the the newest F thirty five. The F thirty five that you cannot make an F thirty five without getting certain uh, rare materials, uh, rare earths from China, uh, and that's against the law. So the, de the Defense Department got a, a waiver of the law to allow them to buy this material from China because you can't build that plane without that material. We've got to do this, and and this jobs report shows that we're not even aware of it i i agree totally i just just my own commentary is you know I, I live in a very old house um you know we 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 settled colorado a long time before we settled florida i'm sure your house is modern and full of all the nice efficiencies but i constantly have repairmen here and they show up driving these hundred thousand dollar trucks and yeah. <laughs> they're talking about their you know they're too they're too busy to like deal with me and 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 then they have you know they their their weekends with their two hundred thousand dollar motorhomes and the, the trades are very, when you say the perception is out there, I agree, the perception is there that going into trades is somehow suboptimal. But man, these guys, like, they're in demand. They get to set their own schedules. They make a lot of money. I wish we, the society and the president and, and the people that have the big microphones would talk about this, that there is an opportunity to get rich, son, by going into a this kind of perceived below you, like carpentry or 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 um, roofing or or landscaping or plumbing, like, these guys, at least in Colorado, they make bank. There is that shift. I think there is that shift, um, what you're talking about there, Matt, you know, towards the vocational trades. I know one of my sons, a lot of a lot of his peers are in, in the trades, and he's seen that carpentry, plumbing, electrician. They're driving trucks, $150,000 annual income. They own homes, while others are still paying down student loans and trying to get an entry-level job in retail. Um, I think the White House has taken some steps on that, but probably certainly not enough. I wanted to bring this to your attention, uh, Dick and Matt, because Bloomberg just had a very interesting report, um, and it said field notes from the U.S. factory boom. And I asked myself, was this some kind of a political hatchet job or otherwise um interesting reporting on it it said across the u.s this is published last week across the u.s spending on the construction of manufacturing facilities reached 198 billion dollars on an annualized basis in august an almost 66 percent increase from the previous year and the highest level since the Bureau of Economic Analysis began tracking data in the 1950s. And it went to one or two locations. Georgia has a big um, groundbreaking there. And Hyundai, I guess, is going to build there with promise of 20,000 jobs. And then it mentioned how Georgia, along with Tennessee 
and the Carolinas is now part of a new EV and battery belt taking shape in the US. Just a lot of spending. But somebody from the White House made the comment that a lot of Americans and analysts are disappointed that we're not seeing it in the numbers just yet. And their comment was it's early days that it'll take a while for the initiatives such as the CHIP Act and the um, Inflation Reduction Act and just the whole admin of this to, to fully take effect. But there are some gains, Dick, I guess, I guess the question, because we spoke about this, that we have a crisis in manufacturing and by the numbers that is actually true. But is there some green shoots perhaps? Well, obviously, you know, there are a number of bills in Congress that were passed uh, over the past couple of years, which would lead to the creation of more manufacturing facilities. But if you take a look at the uh, ISM, which which is, you know, the purchasing manager, uh, you know, indicator of where, you know, money is going to be spent, it's still below 50. It, it's, it's raised, it's risen meaningfully from its lower level. But on the, on the services side, it's showing, you know, uh, well above 50, uh, an economy which is doing really well. And on the manufacturing side, it's still, well, it's at 47, still well below 50, you know, uh, which is a lot better than it was a year ago. But, uh, the fact of the matter is that, uh, we're not where we need to be by a long shot. And whatever we're doing, we need to do a heck of a lot more for. Building car factories in the South has been, you know, a major benefit to the South uh, Southeast over the last, you know, 20 years. I mean, if you go into Alabama, they've got car factories all over the place that come from foreign manufacturers, from, Merce- from Mercedes to Toyota. Uh, and, and you know, if you go to North and South Carolina, you know, you know they're building car- Tennessee, they're building car factories all in those places. The problem with those facilities is I think they're more assembly lines than manufacturing lines in the sense that you're still going to get the carburetor from you know Japan or China or wherever you still you know you're still getting the, the manufactured product from somewhere else we, we've got to do the manufacturing uh, and again you know we the, there are apparently in seabeds huge amounts of rare earths which are just waiting to be picked up i mean japan apparently discovered this massive amount of uh, rare earths in a, in a in a low uh, if you will how would you say where the, where the water is not that deep that can be can be mined and you know there are other people are saying okay well you know uh, you know 20 years ago we didn't think we needed these things why can't we come up with new technology that 20 years from now we don't need these things uh, so so there's a lot of ways to come at this thing and and maybe we're coming at it a little bit but we're not coming at it as fast and as hard as is necessary totally agree i mean the the problem is is this is not one of these things where wall street can come in and fix it it's not one of these things where people on podcasts can come in and fix it it requires government and we don't have a serious government and we don't have serious leaders and it's 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 extremely disappointing i mean i feel like we're flying in a cessna over a train track and you you see this this cliff where or the bridge is is blown up and the train's about to go off the ledge and you see it you know it's going to happen but there's nothing you can do about it because we're not in the position we need we need serious people in this country to become leaders and right now we have clowns from the white house to the congress to the senate to the secretary of state i mean to the cia to like where where are the adults 
And New Yorker magazine uh, two weeks ago had a cover, uh, which I thought was was unbelievably good. It had uh, Biden, Pelosi, Trump, and uh, I forget who the oh, oh um, McConnell, uh, and they were all racing each other uh, on their walkers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was. It was. Uh, I just thought it was so. Well, I would bet $100 none of those people know how to turn on a computer, and I would bet $1,000 that individually, collectively, none of them could. Uh, do, yeah. they collect, do they collect Social Security, any of these uh, elder statesmen and women? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's another I agree. Thing. There's great dysfunction. It doesn't matter. They're taking taxpayer money regardless. And, and yeah, no. But, but also, um, without beating ourselves up, the American – population there's a lot of unrealistic expectations that this largesse can continue um that we can run up consumer debt we're past one trillion and credit cards and that there's nobody takes personal responsibility for paying down anything it seems not not everybody thinks like that but quite a sizable proportion yeah no well obviously that's my problem i think that we're consuming too much producing too little uh we're borrowing too much to do the consumption and that uh, you know at some point and who knows where that point is it's going to cause some massive difficulties in the economy Dick, you have some very interesting notes on the banking system and some data. The one that got my attention was the big shift in, to use your words, big ticket um, items, deposits of 100,000 and up uh, have moved up, I guess, into the into the banking system, whereas overall deposits are down. What is it telling us? Well, I mean, essentially what the banks uh, have done is, uh, is they've now started to reattract holders of a hundred thousand dollars or more in deposits and the way they're doing it is they've uh, moved the uh, rate that they pay on these deposits up to a market rate they're they're, they're consistent with the uh, five five and a half percent or five five and a quarter percent you can get uh, in treasuries um and it's working uh because basically the uh, amount of a uh, hundred thousand dollar plus deposits which are coming into the system coming into the system are basically um soaring they were up 38 percent year over year uh in in the week that just ended last week uh the um the, the increase has been so great that it's pulling total deposits up again so now instead of deposits in the banking system going down the way they were a few weeks ago well for, for a couple of months uh they're now starting to edge up a little bit plus the banks are going to um and and are already increasing the rate that they pay on core deposits also the end of this week on Friday, you've got uh, what they call the earnings season. The bank earnings season begins. Uh, you're going to see JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, uh, and PNC all report their earnings on Friday. And then in the following week, you'll have uh, some 15 banks um, from Bank of America to uh, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and, and uh, you know, Truist, you know, et cetera, US Bank Corp. All these banks will have reported their earnings. So, you know, we will get a very, very good picture of the bank industry in the United States uh, over the next, uh, we'll say, uh, 10 days. The markets, I think, have come to the conclusion that these earnings are going to be better than than is are expected, uh, basically because these stocks have been beaten down so badly that uh, people are now saying, you know, well, wait a minute, you know, how, how low can they go? You know, how bad is their situation? Uh, and they're beginning to understand that th- they've gone about as low as they're going to go. 
uh, and that the situation is 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 not as bad as it's been represented to be. You know, I mean, today the market is pretty strong. Bank stocks were in in good shape in the last couple of days. And my assumption is going right into these earnings, bank stocks will do well. And my guess is that bank stocks uh, are going to do well when the earnings come out because the earnings will be probably be a little bit better than expectation, even though on a year over year basis they'll be down. I was taken by your analysis over the past months um, about bank stocks, the bank sector as an investment. A lot of investors, if I understand you correctly, have been disappointed compared to other sectors. And I'm, I'm kind of blown away by it just based on the amount of cash that flew into banks. Yeah, well, the bank stocks have been horrible performers. I mean, they, they have just been among the worst performers of, of industry groups, uh, you know, in the S&P 500. Uh, and, you know, bank stocks are down below where they were selling five years ago. Uh, you've got big banks like Bank of America, which is selling at the same price it sold at in 1997. And it's not unique in that regard. The fact is that uh, the banking industry made this horrible mistake. It decided that uh, the, it would it would get rid of capital to buy back stock, and you can't you can't get rid of capital if you're a bank. Uh, and, and again, I last Saturday in, in three or four email messages, a bank and Bank of America and I went over this uh, you know discussion again. They bought back eighty five billion dollars worth of stock, which means that they reduced their capital by eighty five billion. They reduced their uh, asset potential by eight hundred and fifty billion. And if they had that eight hundred and fifty billion invested in in thirty day treasuries right now, they'd be getting five percent on that money. And they gave it all up just because they thought that by buying back this stock, they would make the price of the stock go up. The prices of the stock went down. The prices of all these bank stocks get, get plowed. And not only did they get plowed, but it is not unusual for a bank stock to be selling below book value because nobody who picks up a bank statement can believe what they read in the bank statement. Take Truist. You can take uh, you know U.S. Bank Corp. You know they, they indicate you know even though they may have a portfolio yielding three uh, percent, that that portfolio is worth par. It's not worth par, and 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 investors understand that, which is why these bank stocks have done so poorly. No, these these managements, you know, these managements were so derelict in their duty for two reasons. Number one, they never understood what the impact of rising interest rates would be on financial assets. You would think that, you know, that that's something that you learn in, in grade two in grammar school. They don't understand it. They didn't, they didn't protect themselves against it. And number two, they don't understand why a bank must have capital and why it must keep increasing their capital because they all kept just reducing their capital. They're getting what they deserve because they, they've run the businesses wrong. But now, you know, you have to take a look at where they are. And you've got to say, gee, 1997 prices, 1997 prices, you know, selling at 20, 30, 40%, you know, Citigroup, 40% discount to book value. You know, does this make any sense? And I think, you know, the answer there is it doesn't make sense that, uh, you know, th these stocks have hit bottom uh, unless we're going to have a massive, massive uh, recession. Um, so I, my guess is that, um, you know, bank stocks are actually going to do a little bit better here than they've been doing uh, because th there is a bottom and I think they've hit it. Well, when you say that, you're calling a bottom to to treasuries as well um because you know the 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 math is that if treasuries keep rising 
sorry, treasury yields keep rising. Our treasury prices are, have hit the bottom. If not hit the bottom, then the banks are going to be in worse trouble. But I would say just in small defense of bankers, I mean, you know, calling sitting here as a Monday morning quarterback and saying they screwed up and they didn't realize or they didn't believe or whatever, it, it's nice and easy. But like you, you go and look at the interviews from the Silicon Valley Bank executives and their, I'll call it ham-fisted excuse, is that they believed the Fed. They believed inflation was transitory. You had Jay Powell not 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 less than a year and a half ago talking about we're not raising interest rates. This is just a, a transitory inflation. We're fine. So in some ways, I kind of have sympathy if you know to them because you're supposed to believe the Fed when the Fed says they're not raising rates and then they go and raise rates five percent in one year. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the last twelve months have been the fastest interest rate increase in the Federal Reserve's history. It's unprecedented and it comes off the back of all Fed governors, including the chairman, saying we're not going to raise rates. So, you know, I I I just am a little bit sympathetic because to to the to the management of banks because they were just listening to what they were being told in in some regards. Now I agree they weren't smart. And I agree it was stupid. And I agree you could have bought insurance for less than a penny on the dollar way back when 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 the tide was was in. But the tide is now out, and you know I guess you find out who's swimming naked. Yeah, but the point is, you'll be happy to know <clears throat> that Odeon Capital, uh, you know, has written at least twenty reports over the last five years indicating that buying back buying back stock was wrong. Uh, we we were so opposite of what Bank of America was doing, and we had argued with them so long, so hard for such a, you know, over this issue that they actually stopped speaking to me. Uh, they wouldn't take my phone call. They wouldn't respond to, uh, you know, the things that I had written. Um, and they were not alone in that regard, because we've been fighting for five years saying that you can't do this. You cannot run a bank this way. There was a guy named Wallace Malone, who was the CEO of a, of a bank called South Trust, which was an Alabama a bank that was a really fast growing bank. And I remember 30 years ago, you know, you would go to a, a, an analyst meeting uh, with, with Malone and he would be issuing more common stock and all the analysts would be jumping on him for doing it. And he would be taking on all of the analysts saying that they didn't understand banking and they didn't understand why they should uh, continually, why a bank should continually increase its capital. He sold me at the time. I believed him. And therefore, you know, th this firm, you know, your firm has never, ever been behind the ball on that one. Uh, we, we have been way ahead of the way, way ahead of the market, you know, in terms of arguing that, uh, you know, you can't do this. You cannot buy back stock. You cannot buy back stock in tens of billions of dollars uh, and not hurt the bank and not hurt your bank stock price. Now, you know, you're seeing, you know, Bloomberg uh, yesterday wrote this devastating article about capital and Bank of America. They should have written it seven months ago. They should have written it when we were writing those things. On, on that one, you know, we were not, we were not behind the eight ball. I am not, I am not it all suggesting you've been wrong in this in this instance, but I'm just saying that there is by so there's a collective defense, which is we believe the Fed. And then the second thing I would say is if you learned anything in 2008, as long as you're big enough, and Bank America certainly meets that definition, you will be rescued. So it's privatizing gains and socializing losses, and this is not a good place to be. And I'll go back to our country's leaders being basically inept or corrupt. There's nothing more discouraging to me than to think about any person uh, in the top uh, ranks of the United States political system. I don't care, Democratic, Republican, or Independent. I mean, they're all 
they, they all have failed the country and and I think they continue to fail the country and I think that's that's not going to do it's not going to work well program note on Friday November 3rd uh, Dick Matt and myself will be on uh, a live webinar with geek skeezers and Googleization, and you'll be able to watch that on LinkedIn Facebook um, and various social media platforms and we'll, we'll have more information on that next week and we're also now up on YouTube on a sort of delayed basis uh, the audio was up of these episodes on YouTube a week after an episode was published on Apple, Google, Spotify. So you will want to um, go and check all of that out. Uh, Dick and Matt, we had some shocking, really sad, harrowing, awful, I don't know what the right adjectives or words are, barbaric events out of Israel. Our hearts were broken. Just stunning scenes, really. Um, your thoughts generally, and then what does it mean geopolitically, and I know we don't want to uh, be crass here, but it does move the dial in terms of markets on some levels, I would suspect. Yeah, well, th this, this one is really, really complicated. Uh, so it's really difficult to uh, have, uh, you know, any type of perceptive understanding of what's going on. I mean, the first, the, the first images, you know, as, as I mentioned to you before this podcast, you know, my daughter starts to cry when she sees what's happening to these people in Israel to, and these babies in, in Palestine. And the, the thought that strikes your mind is what were these people what was the Hamas thinking? Why, why did they not understand that the Israelis were going to respond uh, to protect their country uh, in the way they they have and they will? Uh, why did they bring this agony on their own people? Uh, and and then you then have to go to the next level of forget Israel, forget Palestine. You got two countries. One country dominates the other country and is is pushing its dominance, and and therefore did the situation get so bad for the other country that they didn't care that they were going to take what whatever move necessary? Or you can go to the level of you know Iran now has made its way into Iraq. They won the Iraq War, not the United not the United States, and they weren't even a participant. Uh, they're in Syria. They're in Lebanon. Uh, they, they, they now, you know, have a chance uh, to, to move, you know, into, you know, the Gaza Strip. Is that the driving factor? And then you can take a look at it in even broader, broader sense, which is you've got these <clears throat> four countries. You've got, um, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea who have stated goals of, you know, curtailing the United States power around the world. And, you know, are they just starting these problems? You know, Russia, you know, goes into the Ukraine. Iran is starting up with Israel. You know, China is, is arguing about Taiwan is, is the next shoe. You know, uh, North Korea is going to start doing something with South Korea. I mean, you, you, you just, we have no idea what's going on. We have no idea what's going on. All we know is that it's dangerous. It's it's uh, turning too violent. Uh, too many people being being hurt by it, and um, you know it's very very frightening. It seems um, like an almost intractable situation. I mean, there's so many strands to this, and it, it is complicated. <clears throat> you have the Israel Palestine situation, then you have the wider Muslim world. 
then you have various ideologies at play and you have internal divisions in Israel today between, I guess, the secularists and the more religious right. Um, and then we had apparently an intelligence breach for that mayhem that followed. Um, just shocking. I somewhat disagree with, actually, I, I think I almost completely disagree with Dick and, and, and you, John, on this. Is, first off, you know, you, you talk about you don't know what's going on, but we're offering our opinions. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of the whale falling to Earth in in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He he didn't know what was going on, but he started making decisions before he you know splattered on the Earth. the The reality of this is, I I, I I've been thought, thinking about uh, Angela Merkel. There's a biography out there where she was giving her opinions on various presidents, and her opinion on Donald Trump was the worst thing about him was she had no idea what he was going to do. And I just was like, you got to be kidding me. That's the best thing about him. The the worst thing about Joe Biden is you know exactly what he's going to do. And within the first 12 hours of the Hamas invasion of Israel, which I agree was a catastrophic failure of intelligence and like 9-11 and maybe even Pearl Harbor, a catastrophic failure of imagination because they went old school. They went, they went you know, Israel has these, sophisticated um, barriers, chronic defenses, and they have the Iron Dome, which will shoot down anything that's coming in at a rate of speed. So what do they do? They come in at speeds dramatically below that. They they launch missile strikes, which they know the Israeli defense force, um, when missiles are being bombarded on the, the Gaza wall, they, they go into their bunkers and hide. So they, they, they launched rocket mi- attacks on um, the Gaza barrier so that the mi- the soldiers would go into their, their bunkers and hide out while they went with wire cutters and cut the fence and invaded Israel. I mean, it's almost spectacular that this could happen in this modern age. But going back to what I was saying about Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, within the first 12 hours, the State Department issued a commentary which seemed, if you're trying to be benevolent to the Biden administration, it seemed neutral to the situation. And and then subsequent, um, Anthony Blinken, who's supposedly, I don't know what that guy is, he's the Secretary of State, but but he's 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 not he's not spoiled by intelligence, endorsed a, a ceasefire as a as a means to try to prevent Israel from exercising self-defense. It, it's it's unbelievable. This is what you would predict from Joe Biden. And you know, I'm 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 not trying to be political, but when you have weakness and in in the in the the most powerful position in the world, uh, the leader of the army, the leader of the armed forces, controlling the largest um, navy, largest air force, largest army, largest nuclear block, largest satellite base, as as perceptively as a weak man, and and I don't think there's anyone out there besides his press secretary and maybe his wife who would pre- pretend that he is somehow a strong man. He is a weak person, and. He even admits it. He woke up at 7.30 in the morning and was informed over breakfast at 8 in the morning that Israel had been invaded. And by noon, he had gone back to bed. And that is the official version. And, and this is what they're, they're they're trying to spin as positive. And so when you have a weak leader and you have a weak United States and you have a weak sovereign Western group, it invites this type of thing. And then you see the EU within you know 24 hours was saying we are going to stop funding of the Palestinian Authority and, and stop funding humanitarian aid into Gaza and within 35 minutes they walked that back because their their populations didn't want to stop supporting Hamas and you know they they do it under the guise of of human rights or whatever but but the world is inviting this type of 
of invasions and this type of of harassment of neighboring countries. This is much more akin to 1914 than anything that I've seen in my, you know, 45 years on earth of studying history because you have feckless leaders all over and they're in charge. And then you have conniving leaders that are smart, you know, people like Vladimir Putin, who is not anywhere close to you know, a, a, a double digit IQ, like, like the, some of the Western leaders and people um, like the Ayatollah in Iran who know this is an opportunity. This is a time. And you've talked a lot and I've, I've been wrong on lots of issues. And I'm probably going to be wrong on this one. I don't think China is going to invade Taiwan, but if China was going to invade Taiwan, <laughs> it's a great time to best get to it because the world is, is sending you a gold plated invitation to do it right now. I don't. I don't know if I agree with you on the 1914 comparison, um, Matt. But you brought up something that's interesting. It should be should be noted. And I have lived on both sides of the Atlantic. I grew up in Ireland, Europe, lived here in America, and there is a distinct difference in tone and attitude to Israel in America versus Europe. I, I have to admit that they're almost. I mean, they're pretty much on the Palestine side in Europe. Um, not that pro-Israel in a lot of European countries is almost tinged with a certain, and I say this reservedly and carefully, anti-Semitism, whereas in America we're more pro-Israel and hopefully more measured that we support both sides on some level and that we have a peaceful outcome for the Palestinians who have suffered and for the Israelis, that they need their homeland. Look, I, I, I mean, New York was host in Times Square, um, to a pro-Palestinian rally um, on on Sunday, uh, there's videos of of pro-Palestinian rallies all over England, all over um, uh, Europe, in Berlin, in Portugal. Um, you know, yes, there's 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 definitely a pro-Palestinian bent out there, and I I my opinion is it comes from ignorance, um, but I I I did my study abroad in in, in university in in Jerusalem. And we visited the Gaza Strip, and we visited the Golan Heights, and I spent time in Jordan. I spent time in Egypt while I was in study abroad. I spent time in Lebanon. Um, there is, you cannot understand the Palestinian plight without being dramatically sympathetic. Because if you're yeah. born in Gaza, you, you, you're, it's, you're, a, it's you're, a hellhole. It's a hellhole. I mean, yeah. you'd almost rather be born in North Korea. Yeah, absolutely. At least in North Korea. If you play by the rules, you have a chance of making it to adulthood. Whereas in Gaza, if you play by the rules, you have a very good chance of dying as a child, building a, a tunnel underneath the, the wall, you have a, or, or being in, enslaved, or being drafted to be a suicide bomber, or just being collateral damage to one of the IDF retaliations. And the, the big lie is that the Arab nations surrounding Israel have, have two thoughts towards the Palestinians. They could solve this crisis immediately. You, you know, the, you want to know the most secure border in Gaza? It is not the border with Israel, as clearly demonstrated, you know, over the, over the past few days. It is the border of Rafah versus against Egypt. You cannot, there is no transactions between Gaza and Egypt, yet they share a border. And the Palestinians are not trying to bomb Egypt, but Egypt does not want the Palestinians there. They, they are a second-class citizen. If you go and look at Jordan or Jordan is probably the predominant country that that took in Palestinian refugees over the last multi-decades and Palestinians have been they're not subjects they're not citizens they're refugees in Jordan living in refugee camps they have no rights and they're 
essentially permanently there until the status quo changes. And, you know, you're now on, I think, great-grandchildren now being born um, in, in these Palestinian refugee camps. If not, it's just grandchildren. But you're talking about three generations of families, and, and it's not hundreds of thousands. It's millions of people um, in Gaza, in the West Bank, in the refugee camps in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, in, and, and they're second-class citizens to everyone. And it is a disgrace. But the reaction cannot be that you go in and start shooting college students at a music Absolutely. festival. Absolutely, and, and some of the videos of of them, you know, they they the, the 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 ones I saw where they executed grandmas on Facebook Live so that their families could watch, and then they burned their bodies, and they're taking children out of their homes and and executing the children in front of the parents, and then taking the parents as hostages. I mean, that that is not a civilized reaction. It's it's war crimes. It's beyond war crimes, and it, it's a disgrace. So I I don't. I'm not trying to carry water for anyone, but I'm pointing out that there's a vacuum of leadership and it starts in the United States where we need to be the world power. And we don't have a Speaker of the House because our Congress is dyslexic or something worse. And we don't have a president because I, I don't know why we don't have a president. It, he goes back to bed. <laughs> I'm sorry about that one, but he sleeps a lot. He does sleep a lot. Uh, he's not a powerful man. I, 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 you need a strong person to be a leader of the free world. You just do. And it's unfortunate that we elected something on the polar opposite of strong. Dick, how do you see, I mean, I, I think you wrote about this. You had a note. Uh, again, we don't want to be crass, but it does impact markets, what happened in Israel. You had a note on oil. Your thoughts on that, how it impact price of oil or will that has it stabilized it seems to have stabilized a little bit in the past few days well yeah because because people are confused as to what iran is going to do uh but if if this thing were to uh escalate to a point where iran was perceived to be part of it uh it is very likely that the uh Hormuz straits would be uh mined by iranian uh water you know the, these water mines and and tankers will not be able to get out you know with oil to, to the rest of the world so the risk of oil prices moving up very sharply is there um but we i again i i am not clear at all as to what's happening and i'm not clear at all as to where therefore it's going to go but uh and, and matt's statements i think are very 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 should be listened to very very carefully uh because they're very balanced um but i think i think uh i think i i just don't know where this thing is going to go i think the market has simply made the decision to ignore it uh at the moment and um hopefully that's the right decision because it gets resolved without uh expanding widely but the potential is there for it to go very very wide and, and by the way my comparison to 1914 is you know the 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 armchair quarterback Monday morning version of 1914 was, you know, you had six major powers. None of them wanted to go to war. And Germany, you know, as a quasi-defensive, preemptive defensive act, wanted to attack France so that when they were being invaded by Russia on the eastern flank, wouldn't have to defend two sides. And they thought they could take out France really quickly. And they ended up in a land war in Belgium fighting the the Brits. Um and and then then had their two front war when when the Russia when Russia finally did come in and it was this accidental war and what we have in going on right now is you have Putin invading Ukraine um, regardless of of your opinion on that that's happening it's a land war in Europe and it's not intentional and you know the Wall Street Journal has reported that Iran basically planned and funded 
this invasion using uh, money, you know, money is fungible. U.S. gave them $6 billion. The $6 billion that they didn't have to spend on food and 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 water for their people, they can now spend planning a war against Israel. You know, you can you can kind of start connecting the dots that there might be multiple wars that are backed into by accident. And I say accident heuristically because it's it's not the design of the United Nations or the United States to have all these wars. It's the consequence of trying to avoid them that creates them. And, you know, the, I, I don't think that the Biden administration gave Iran $6 billion to start a war. I think they did it because they thought it could buy peace. And in, inadvertently, they might be starting a war. And so the parallels to me is just that accidental wars happen when you're doing everything you can to avoid them and you make strategic mistakes in with that endeavor. So I hear you saying, man, we need strong, courageous, um, smart, intelligent, bright leaders who will stand up to the autocrats and those uh, raining down yeah, massive we also, terror. We need, we need leaders that have a world vision. And, right. and what, right. what I think we're really missing in Joe Biden, you know, I, I don't be, be, bemoan his age. I, I, I don't think the age should be a factor. I think it's capabilities and all those other things. And so I, I don't bemoan his age. But what you don't have from him is a vision. If you were to go and ask anyone, including the smartest and the dumbest Americans on the street, what is America's goal? in ukraine you wouldn't be able to come up with an answer because no one knows because our leader has not told us what our goal is if you were to ask anyone what our goal was in vietnam most people would say anyone who's been through some rudimentary junior high you know history lesson oh it's to stop the domino effect we're worried about communism spreading okay maybe it's good maybe it's bad but you at least kind of knew what it was what is our goal in israel we don't know what is our goal in taiwan we don't know what is our are we defending taiwan are they our ally because we have an embassy in China. We don't have an embassy in Taiwan. So what is going on? Why don't we have a leader telling us? That is my problem with our leadership is there is not a global vision that you could enunciate as to what America's role is. And if our president doesn't know what it is, then we are in a problem. And a lot of the people running for president on the Republican side, I wouldn't include Donald Trump in them because I don't know what his vision is. But a lot of the others, they tell you exactly what their vision is. And if they were our leader, we could at least have a collective say as to whether or not we agreed with their vision. Whereas right now, we don't know what the vision is, and we don't know what our purpose is in the, in the country. And it shows. When Anthony Blinken cannot elicit to the, to the United Nations what we're doing in Israel or Ukraine, and he's our Secretary of State, and he doesn't know, yeah, we have a yeah. big problem. And that's my problem with our, our leadership. Yeah, it's sort of knee-jerk and, and chaotic. It's, it's just, it's, it's, not, it's not the right approach you're saying also. Um, yeah. well, we'll Sorry. talk about that. So we'll talk more about that next week and we'll come back to the markets and uh, to the banks and the economy and lots more for episode 91. And until then, take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.